Well, welcome to the 47th episode of Spurbs Herbs. God, just a few episodes away, we're going to hit number 50. Today, we're going to be talking about one of my favorite herbs, Yin Yang Huo, uh, Epimedi Herba, or just simply Epimedium. And so, without further ado, let's start the program. So, today, we'll be looking at one of my favorite Chinese herbs, Yin Yang Huo, or Epimedium. The origin story for this herb gives the fifth grader in me giggles, and you'll see why I won't explain anything. <laughs> Despite that, this is a very interesting, powerful, and useful herb. And as always, we will look at something a little different. Today, we'll be looking at the four great masters of the Jinyuan dynasties in Chinese medicine. So please keep listening. Hopefully, we will learn something together. Before we do that, boy, oh boy, do I have a deal for you today. We have spent years preparing our How to Understand Drugs as an Herbalist series, and it is finally complete, and we are celebrating. Celebrating with the biggest deal we have ever offered. You get our complete 45-hour course with CEUs and a lovely formidable certificate of completion for half off. But we were including so much more. We'll throw in a signed copy of my book, Integrative Pharmacology, Combining Modern Pharmacology with Integrative Medicine, right there and then. That is $80 value. Uh, plus, you will get an additional two-hour course. I think one of our most important courses is Interpreting Chinese Medical Research for absolutely free. And that is still not all. We'll give not one, but two additional hours more of any course you want. So that is 49 hours of courses and continuing education, a free signed book, a lovely certificate. That is a value of $809.95 worth of amazing products. And we are going to give it to you for only $337.50. Just go to www.integrativemedicinecouncil.org slash megadeal. That's Integrative Medicine Council, C-O-U-N-C-I-L dot org slash megadeal. Uh, M-E-G-A-D-E-A-L, and get your discount right now. Uh, please hurry. This is limited time and offer, and, and actually, uh, if you're listening to this, it's not going to last much longer, so hurry. Thank you. So we're going to start by talking a little bit of Chinese history. We've done that uh, now again. We've talked about different philosophies. I don't know if we've gotten, we've talked about historical events, but I don't know if we've done broad strokes and talked about Chinese history which is usually broken down into dynasties. And dynasties, of course, are um, areas of, of uh, major, of, of a particular dynasty holding sway over China. They often will last um, a long time. In this case, we're going to start with talking about the Song Dynasty, which went over 300 years, 960 to 1280 CE. And so that's that's the beginning of you know the, everything's kind of broken down in that in that way in Chinese medicine in Chinese history. So it's Song Dynasty or it's Ming Dynasty or or uh, Han Dynasty. And so knowing a little bit about the dynasties is important. So we're starting with Song Dynasty today. And again, as I just said, it lasts three hundred years, about nine sixty to twelve eighty. And I say about because you know when does a dynasty begin and when does it end? Often there's a battle involved in both ends of that. But it can also be, you know, it can be a little frazzled. It can take 10 or 15, 20 years for one to leave and one to come in. 
So it's not always, uh, you know, uh, straight up. But what happened during the Song Dynasty is we see that Neo-Confucianism was developed during this time. If you're not familiar with Neo-Confucianism, we've talked about Confucianism, we've talked about Taoism, and I think we've talked a bit about Buddhism as well. And Neo-Confucianism is sort of a combination of all this. Up to this Song Dynasty, what we really saw from early on in, in Chinese history, from about the Han Dynasty, is we really saw Confucianism as being sort of the dominant philosophy of, of of uh, China historically and how it was ruled. And that makes a lot of sense. Confucianism is very much about governing, while Taoism is basically anti-government and it's, well, all its advice for government is, you know, do nothing, basically. I'm, I'm paraphrasing and super simplifying, but it's not much into it. Same with Buddhism, it's more a philosophy than a, a governing philosophy. So Confucianism was dominant. And so what happens during the Song Dynasty is we start to see a combination of those three starting to happen and really flower in Chinese thought. And this Neo-Confucianism supported scientific thinking. It started to blend with Taoist ideas about nature, emphasize secularism. So there's no, so they, they start to step out of mysticism at this point. Up to this point, if you went to Chinese medical school, there was a whole department of magic in Chinese medical school, if you went to Chinese medical school and, and had been for hundreds of years at this point. So this is when that starts to break down. Song Dynasty intellectual climate supported the development of new medical ideas. Um, it says here with the entry of Buddhism, new ideas and information came into China. So remember Buddhism started in India, but it did not come in during the Song Dynasty. It came in hundreds of years before the Song Dynasty. Usually I hear about 200, year, 200 CE, so 700 years before this, but it was relatively fringe. Um, so now what we start to see is um, Buddhism starting to have more of a hold on Chinese thought during the Song Dynasty and, and this flowering of the intellectual climate happening. So there's a great quote here, ancient formulas cannot treat all of today's diseases. And this was inspired by Wang Anshu, a philosopher of the Northern Song. Song is, is Southern Song and Northern Song. There's um, two different areas here. And again, I'm not a Chinese historian, so I'm not going to get too much into all that. But uh, uh, Wang Anshu declared that there were no supernatural forces. So now we start to have a break with those supernatural forces. That's important. I mean, if you look at Western history, that was really the contribution of Hippocrates and his contemporaries was this break from supernatural forces. And something similar did happen in China around the same time, but it's still, there's a lot of supernatural forces. You read uh, the, the uh, Divine Farmers, Shendang Fen Saojing, the Divine Farmers Materia Medica, which we are going to talk about later on. Uh, there's a lot of spiritualism and mysticism in that still, and that was about 200 CE. Uh, well, Hippocrates was about 200 um, BCE, so 400 years before that. Um, so, you know, there's still supernatural forces, but this is where, you know, even though there's a lot of talk about breaking from supernatural forces, it still was a force in medicine. Song Dynasty is when we start to really break that. Yin-Yang and five-phase theory governed all phenomena, so we really are sort of emphasizing yin-yang and five-phase theory. If you haven't heard five-phase theory, um, that is probably a more accurate translation for what a lot of people have heard of as five elemental theory. Elements, it just isn't the right uh, translation for the word xing. Um, I think phase is a much better one, and it implies movement, which elements don't. So the five-phase theory is probably technically more correct. And during this, this whole kind of change period, there were 
a lot of new medical theories that developed to fruition in the Jinyuan dynasty. So after the Song, or actually in the, in the Song, we have the Jinyuan dynasty. So we're going to see what that means right now. So the Jin dynasty lasted from about 1115 to 1243. Now, we just said the Song dynasty lasted in 12, until 1260. So here's a dynasty within a dynasty. And remember, when we're talking about China, we're talking about a vast geography. I mean, a huge geography. So there are areas that may still be part of the Song dynasty, but the Jin dynasty, this Jin portion, carved out its own areas in certain parts of China. So you can't have multiple dynasties at the same time. So while being one of the most technologically and culturally advanced people in the world at the time, the Song were not militarily powerful. Part of the reason for this may be because of Confucianism held the military in very low regard. This prolonged period of paying tribute to enemies rather than being militarily strong enough to defeat them left the Song susceptible to attack from others. So let's just absorb this for a second. I mean, here's a big dynasty, a Chinese dynasty, saying, look, we can't really defend ourselves against the Mongols, which, you know, just after this, the Mongols take over. So this, I'm being truthful here. Um, so we can't really do it. So what we're going to do is when the Mongols raid or threaten us, we're going to give them money. And, and goods and, and women, and we're going to intermarry, you know, and, and, and do things so that they won't attack us. So what does that do? That actually weakens the song. They never developed their own military, and it strengthens the enemy. And eventually that enemy became strong enough to take over. We're going to see that in a few hundred years. We're not going to talk about it now, but um, that is what ultimately does happen. So with this weakness, by 1115 CE, a group called the Jin were able to conquer the song. The Jin Dynasty lasted for a little over about 125 years, from 1115 to 1243, as I mentioned. And the Yuan Dynasty actually started in 1279 and, and lasted until 1368. So remember, we said the, the, the Song Dynasty. Well, I have here that we said the Song Dynasty uh, lasted until 1280. So uh, yeah, that's about right. I keep saying 1260, but it's 1280. Sorry about that. So it lasted until about 1280. So Yuan Dynasty started kind of like a year before the fall of the Song Dynasty, which makes sense. You have someone come up powerful and they establish themselves and it takes a little bit for them to take over. So uh, in between the Jin Dynasty and the Yuan Dynasty, you know, the Jin Dynasty ended in 1243, the Song Dynasty ended in 1280. Um, we do still have the Song Dynasty. That's still there underlying everything. But during this period from about 1115 to 1368, that combined is called the Jin Yuan period. So that lasted um, several, you know, about 245 years, maybe 250 years in that neighborhood. And out of this Jin Yuan period, we get the four great masters of the Jin Yuan period. Now, these four great masters were fundamental, important Chinese medical practitioners. These are doctors, I should say. I'm just going to say doctors at this point. They were Chinese medical doctors, historically super significant to Chinese medicine. And basically, they looked at Chinese medicine that was around at this time and said, hey, it's not exactly, I mean, we're, we're talking about the fundamentals of Chinese medicine have been around for about a thousand, over a thousand years at this point. And Chinese medicine not doing exactly, you know, is not as good as it could be. And in this re-examination, we come up with these four great masters of the Jinyuan period. These four great masters are, are, known, are uh, Liu Hejian, also known as Liu Huangsu, Zhang Zihe, Li Dongyuan, and Zhu Dan Shi. 
These are the four great masters. Now, um, out of these four great masters, each of them kind of started their own school of thought in Chinese medicine, which are still around today, though some are more important than other schools of thought. And so this idea of these four great masters, we're talking now, you know, uh, the latest 1368, so we're talking 800 years ago, you know, um, seven, 800 years ago at minimum, up to 1,000 years ago, or close to 1,000 years ago, um, these set the course for Chinese medicine for a very long time. Now, there's another big upheaval in Chinese medicine that comes up later, uh, and then another one in more uh, closer in modern times. But this was one of the biggest upheavals, and it did establish a lot of Chinese medicine that we practice today. So let's get into all four of these just real quick. So the first one is Liu He Jian, and, or Lian Wan Su, and he said the principle of heat is sort of the predominant, uh, you know, sort of thought theory that should be looked at when you practice medicine. And, and basically he says all accumulation of qi transforms to heat and fire, and accumulation of qi happens in any sort of accident or or uh, pain or anything along those lines. So ultimately, if you don't treat it, it will transform to heat and fire. And so he established what's known as the cool and cold school, or just the cold school of thought, which is dominated by the use of cold and cooling medicinals. So that's sort of the underlying principle and their school of thought that they come out with. Now, today, um, this is not one of the more dominant ones. It's still important, still useful for certain conditions. But we actually say that cold and cooling medicinals actually harms digestion, and so it should not be predominant. We're going to see why that's important with one of these other uh, great masters coming up. So the second great master is Zhang Zihe, and he established the draining and precipitating school. I always learned of this as the purgative school. That's the way I've always been taught about it. And he said many diseases caused by obstructions and are caused by obstructions and require freeing methods. So he was all about moving things. Uh, here's a quote from him. If one wants nourishment, the five grains, five meats, and the five vegetables are excellent tonics. It is possible to get nourishment from dried grass, dead bark, roots, and kernels. So I'm not sure I know the, the context of that quote, but it's quote for him. Now, it, it, the Purgative School, I, I think, was a, a very strong school for a very long period of time because it was very dramatic and had very dramatic effects. However, used improperly could cause a lot of problems. Again, that digestion is an important part of this, and, and it would wreak havoc on the earth, uh, which we're going to find out is important for digestion. And so this, this school of thought is... In, in, is not super predominant in, in modern Chinese medicine, at least not in the U.S., because it involves vomiting, uh, purg purgating the, the, the bowels um, with stools and everything. So, you know, most people in, in uh, modern uh, America aren't going to say, you know, if I say, okay, well, I want you to take this pill, you're going to feel like a million bucks in about a week, but um, between um, taking this pill and that week, you're going to be vomiting all over the place. Um, I, you know, most people aren't going to take that pill. So not a super common uh, school, uh, used school today. Still has its appropriate applications. Uh, not that I've ever used them. I've been, I've been tempted a few times in, as a clinician, but I, I haven't really gone down that route. Um, but so, again, one of those 
it's got its uses, but not as important. One of the, the things that's very interesting, though, is I would say the whole detox movement that we have going on right now is very much in this, in this school of thought. Um, the idea that you have to detox yourself by purging is basically what the detox movement is, is eating and drinking things that clear up your bowels and your liver. That's very much in line with the thought thinking process of, of Zhang Zihe. And then we get to Li Dong Yuan. Arguably, he's probably the most influential of these four. And he basically said all disease is caused by abnormal function of the spleen and stomach. Now, the spleen and stomach are the main digestive organs in Chinese medicine. I've mentioned this, I think, in the, in, in the past. But I just want to mention that, um, you know, the spleen, from a Western point of view, is not a digestive organ at all. But in Chinese medicine, it is the primary digestive organ. And we can reconcile that because uh, there was an a, um, a, uh, anatomy book uh, around 1800, uh, maybe 1700, that said, and it talked about the tail of the spleen. And the spleen has no tail. It's just an oddly shaped balloon shape um, from a Western point of view. But right below it is the pancreas, which is triangular and would could look as, like a tail of the spleen. And that's where all our digestive enzymes are. So when we're talking about the spleen in Chinese medicine, I, I firmly believe we were talking about the spleen and pancreas sort of combined. If you look at the functions of the spleen in Chinese medicine, it kind of has both of those functions entwined in it. So um, the spleen is a very important digestive uh, organ in Chinese, in, in Chinese medicine. And so the spleen and stomach are also both part of the earth element, earth phase. And so this is also called the earth supplementing school. So that's the other spleen and stomach school sometimes you'll hear, but earth school or earth sum, supplementing school is, is sort of the common term for this. And he basically felt that precipitating sweating and emesis were dangerous, that they drained your ability to actually absorb and, and, and digest things properly. And so this was a reaction, not necessarily a reaction to, to uh, Zhang Zihe, because purgating, purgative, and, and purging was before him. He just kind of established it and he wrote more about it. Um, but it had been around for a long time. And his, the reason why I said it is Li Dong Yuan, I think, was one of the first of the four great masters. So I think he predated uh, Zhang Zihe. I might be wrong in that. So, um, but the purging, purging was still there before that. And so he said, this isn't right. This depletes people. And so then they get weaker afterwards. And so the Earth Sublimating School is kind of the opposite of the purging school. Nice um, quote. I have some pictures here. If you can see them, I always think Zhang Zihe looks a little stern. You know, the pur he's purging. So he's a little stern. And Li Dong Yuan just looks like the nicest guy. Just very sweet looking. So um, when he was aging and about to die, he took on a pupil asking, do you want to be a money-making doctor or a life-saving physician? The student replied, I come for the sake of knowledge. So that was an interesting uh, question. It was, a, it was a similar question that my grandfather gave me <laughs> before I, uh, I started medical school. He said, uh, uh, I'm going to give you a large sum of money. Do not go to medical school. And, I, and he then confided that medical school was his worst time of his life. And I said, nope, I'm going to medical school. And I think he was a little proud of me, but he, he did try to tempt me with some money. So, so Li Dong Yuan is very famous uh, for writing Pi Wei Lun, or the Treatise on the Spleen and Stomach. Again, this came out in his life, which was between 1180 and 1251. 
uh, as I said, written by Li Dongyuan, established the Earth Supplementing School. And basically, he said many diseases are due to spleen stomach vacuity. Uh, and treatment of these diseases requires supplementing spleen and stomach. So this became a really predominant. Uh, in fact, I, you know, when I'm going through Chinese medical school, you know, the, the four-year program, it, it was never said explicitly, but I, I very much think it was dominated by this school of thought. Um, so I think we're, we're often, as Chinese medical practitioners in, in the U.S., are definitely... Uh, are definitely trained in this sort of thinking process. So the Pee Loon contains numerous discussions of gastrointestinal diseases, though not organized by disease. Uh, some of the conditions discussed include abdominal pain, pressure, fullness, and urgency, a bland taste in the mouth, coarse constipation, diarrhea, and dysentery, which of course is going to be rampant in this pre-refrigerator uh, age, you know, nausea and vomiting, flatulence, Glomus below the heart. Now, this is something that is not in, in Western medicine, but it's actually kind of important in Chinese medicine. It's this feeling of something just kind of stuck just below the heart. Um, and it's, it's a very interesting sort of uh, thing that there's a lot in the Pee Loon and in other, other textbooks that just has no real equivalent in, in Western medicine. And then it also has uh, stuff on epigastric pain, of course. And the fifth of the four great masters is Zhu Zhang Shi, uh, which is, he's uh, very famous and still very relevant today. Again, um, you know, I think predominantly I was taught in the, the Earth Supplementing School, but I think there's a lot of Zhu Zhang Shi in my training as well. Uh, that is translated, by the way, as the Squire of the Scarlet Stream. That's what Zhu Zhang Shi actually means, the Squire of the Scarlet Stream. Uh, many diseases caused by insufficiency of yin and hyperactivity of yang. So his school is called the yin enriching school. So this enriches the, the fluids and the yin of, of the body. And it makes a lot of sense. He discussed ministerial fire and sovereign fire relationships, which are quite complicated in Chinese medicine. I'm definitely not going into that right here, right now. But it's in, those are important concepts in, in, in Chinese medicine. And, you know, I, I think... In my training, what I, I kind of get is for most of our life, it's the spleen supplement, it's the earth school, supplementing school, this, the Li Dong Yuan. But as we get older, yin enriching school becomes more important in order to uh, deal with old age and to extend life and make our lives more comfortable. So uh, that's sort of how I reconcile those two schools that are still very important, I think. So he wrote Dan Shi Xin Fa, Dan Shi's Heart Approach. And he is known as the master of miscellaneous diseases. And his text contains many classifications of internal medicine diseases. And I'm fascinated by some of the stuff that he has covered in this. So, for example, it, it's a related text, Dan Shi Shi Fa Xin Yao, the heart and essence of Dan Shi's methods of treatment. Talks about diarrhea, something called sudden turmoil disorder, which um, is <coughs> not fun. We've all experienced it. It's um, sudden turmoil is when you have to vomit and diarrhea at the same time, and you're not sure what end should go beyond the toilet. So that's called sudden turmoil disorder. Dysentery, retching, vomiting, and belching, heart turning. I love that term, heart turning. That's nausea. Uh, when we feel nauseated, it's heart turning in the Chinese 
uh, translation. Stomach reflux, drum distension, that would be sort of the equivalent of ascites, sort of a, a, a edema of the, of the, of the belly. Uh, I also included a chapter on phlegm, a chapter on panting. It says, when dormant is vital support right chi, when active attacking evils is the rule when it comes to panting. Another chapter on wheezing. And here it says, for wheezing, the exclusive rule is to treat phlegm. So that's interesting from a Chinese point of view. Uh, another chapter on coughing of blood. And one of my interesting is this chapter on pulmonary abscess. I mean, this is someone writing in 1481 about pulmonary abscesses. I mean, that's a surgical, I mean, it, it can be a, an antibiotic thing, but it can also be a surgical thing in modern day. I mean, this is a, that's a heavy duty thing to, know there's a pulmonary abscess and actually have a treatment for it, you know, 800 years ago, 700 years ago. That's pretty amazing. So that's it for four great masters. Uh, as you can see, there's a lot of interesting stuff there, a lot of fascinating uh, schools of thought that are, like I said, still relevant today. Uh, so let's talk about, let's get in, let's transition from that and get into our herb of the day, which is yin yang huo or Epimedi Urba, which really doesn't fall into any of those categories, uh, any of those schools of thought. So but that's okay. So Yin Yang Huo, Epimedi Urba, is from the family um, um, Beriberi Beri Dossier, and it has a lot of species. I'm, I don't think I'm going to read these. Well, I guess I... So the, sort of the main species, at least according to Bensky, which is one of our major textbooks, this is the species Epimedium brevicornum maxim, and that's yin yang quo. However, Chen and Chen, are another one of our big textbooks that we use here, says that that is not the main species and that that's actually called xin ye yin yang quo. Uh, and then they actually say the, the main yin yang quo is Epimedium grandiflorum more. Um, so that's a different species than Epimedium brevicornum. But all of these do have certain medicinal properties. And, and so there's a bunch of others. Epimedi sagittatum, um, uh, maxim, it's a seed and silk maxim. So those are referring to the, to the biologists who, who classified them. And that's called jian ye, yin yang huo. You have Epimedi pubescensis maxim, which is ro, ro mao yin yang huo. You have Epimedium wushanense, wu yeah, Nancy, Nance, um, which is Wushan Yin Yang Kuo, Epimedi Koreanum, Cor Koreanum. So that's I'm assuming that's from Korea, and that's called Chaoshan Yin Yang Kuo. So there's a lot of different species that are considered medicinal from a Chinese point of view, and the medicinal part of this herb, um, which is is we see, but it's you know we haven't really had a lot out of 47 episodes. We haven't really seen a lot of the entire herb being the medicinal part. So you use the entire herb of this. Now the English translation, this is where the fifth grader in me giggles. Um, I, I love the way the new version of Bensky says it. It says it's licentious go towards. And I can just hear a British accent. Licentious go towards. Um, the previous uh, version, and I believe Chen Chen currently says it's horny goat weed. And that refers to, uh, that's that's what yin yang huo actually means is is licentious goat order, horny goat weed. They'll, they mean the same thing, different translations. And it actually refers to how it was first discovered, which was goat herders 
would be herding their goats and they would notice that the goat, um, when a goat ate a certain plant, then they start having sex with a lot of the other goats. They become very horny. And so uh, they investigated that herb, came up, found out it was epimedi, yin yang huo, and hence called it uh, horny goat weed and, or licentious goat wart. So that's, that's the English translation and the history of this herb all the way. Now, is that a legend? Is that reality? I mean, a lot of our herbs are actually found by watching what happens to the animals who eat it. So I, I think it, it rings relatively true, but it probably comes down a bit as legend more than anything else. So real quick, the um, Burberry dossier family. Again, I don't know how to pronounce this. I'm not, I don't speak Latin. I try my best here. <laughs> Berberidaceae are a family of flowering plants or angiosperms, commonly called the Barberry family. If you're not familiar with barberries, um, they are, um, it's, a, it's a whole uh, family of flowering plants, but barberries themselves, if you're not familiar with them, are used a lot in uh, Middle Eastern cooking. They're very, they're very tasty. Uh, the family contains about 18 genera. Uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica says 14, another source says 16, so anywhere between 14 and 18 genera, and 700 known species. It includes trees, shrubs, and perennial herbaceous plants. There, there wasn't anything other than the barberries. There wasn't anything else that was super interesting about any of these plants. Some of them are decorative. You know, you might see them uh, for decorative purposes, but um, not a whole bunch of food or medicinal purposes other than the barberry and the separate. So other names for this herb include barrenwort, bishop's hat, fairy wings. I love these names. <laughs> As we mentioned, epimedium, short-horned epimedium, sagittate epimedium, rubescent epimedium, Korean epimedium. I think those are all referring to those specific species that we were talking about earlier. Uh, in Japanese, it's called inyokaku. And in Korean, it's um, yumyang. Yu Myang Guac. Uh, other Chinese uh, terms for this is Gan Qian Qian Ling Pi, which means mortal spirit spleen. Bali Sao. Ji Jua Lian. Sanjir Jiu Ye Sao. And Yang He Ye. Yang He Ye. All right, I'm going to do my normal thing. I have had many years of Chinese. I do. Uh, I do uh, understand it a little bit, but I, my pronunciation sucks, uh, so I apologize for that. I think that would be a good drinking game for people watching my podcast, is if every time I mentioned I'm, I can't speak Chinese well, you have to take a drink, um, but I don't know how many people are actually going to listen in, in spirits around my, my podcast, but there you go. Japanese specific species that we All were right, talking about. moving on. <laughs> That's my watch talking at me. So the dosing of this, Bensky says the dose, and his team says the dose is 3 to 9 grams. Chen Chen says the dose is 10 to 15 grams. So it actually starts higher than what Bensky does. But remember, they're saying it's a different species. So maybe the different species needs a little bit higher dose. And then finally, Brandon Wiseman, which is the other big textbook that I use in looking up this, says it's between 5 and 10 grams. So pretty much in line with what Bensky and his team says. The category for this, according to Bensky and his team, puts is the herbs that tonify the yang subcategory of tonifying herbs. So the big category is tonifying herbs. 
subcategory is uh, tonify the yang herbs is what the category is. Chen, she, Chen similarly says it's a yang tonifying herb. And Brenna Wiseman say it belongs to yang supplementing medicinals. So similar, uh, slightly different translation. We're going to talk about what this means in just a minute. I'm going to get into this class of it, but just kind of keep that uh, in, in that. So uh, thank you, Ralph. <laughs> All three texts say it is acrid, sweet, warm, and enters the kidney and liver. So that's that's interesting that they all agree because that's relatively rare. Um, there's usually some discrepancy between these three books, which is why I like looking at all three books when I'm looking at this stuff. So um, spicy or acrid, sweet, warm, and enters the kidney and liver. Remember that kidney and liver. We're going to mention that in just a minute. So Bensky and his team and Chen Chen both agree the original source of this herb is the Shennan Ben Sao Jing or the Divine Husbandsman's classic of the Materia Medica, written in the second century CE. Um, this is where a lot of our herbs come from. That is the first existing book on individual herbs. So if an herb is in that book, it means it's probably, it's one of the first herbs that's been, that was used medicinally in, in China, at least recorded. Uh, I'm not saying there aren't lots of other herbs that have been used for thousands of years in China, but this is our first recorded uh, uh, you know, recording of what those herbs are in the Shenan Beng Sao Jing. So what are these herbs that tonify the yang? So according to Bensky and his team, these herbs are used for patterns of yang deficiency, primarily of the kidneys. Remember I said, remember the kidneys, spleen and heart. So we said kidneys and liver. So liver isn't really there, but the kidneys definitely are, which underlies the qi transforming functions of the body. They're also known as herbs that assist the yang or zhu yang. Because the kidneys are the seat of the primal yang, what we're born with, the basis of all the body's yang, the most important use of this class of herbs is to tonify the kidney yang. The principal manifestation of kidney yang deficiency is systemic exhaustion and the lack of warmth. Yang is the warming aspect of our body. So if you're deficient in it, you're going to be cold. That's You've got to be cold. If you're not cold, you don't have yang deficiency. But you can have a mixture and maybe not feel it all the time, but you have to have a level of cold in order to have yang deficiency. The most common associated symptoms are withdrawal into oneself, fear of cold, cold extremities, sore and weak lower back and lower extremities, pale tongue, and a deep and weak pulse. Other related problems include impotence, Spermatorrhea. So this term spermatorrhea is an interesting. It means leakage of sperm. And yet, from a modern Western medical point of view, that never happens. You know, it's just not it. I had a teacher who said that's maybe referring to uh, wet dreams, nocturnal emissions. Um, I'm not sure I'm buying that either. But basically, if there's something going on with, you know, the ejaculation or ejaculate, that's probably in the realm of this, of this sort of scenario. A watery vaginal discharge is another other. So these are still other related problems. Watery vaginal discharge, infertility, enuresis. So that's that's uh, 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 wedding bed wetting, wetting the bed at night. Polyuria, which is going to the bathroom too much, wheezing, and something called daybreak diarrhea, which is very much a, a Chinese medical thing, which is you wake up having to go diarrhea. It's like as soon as the day breaks. You instantly have to go. And what that usually refers to is both spleen and kidney yang deficiency. That's what we, we say that, that refers to as daybreak diarrhea. 
herbs that tonify the yang are divided into three principal. I will continue the explanation of tonify the yang herbs. So herbs that tonify the yang are divided into three principal classes. Those that are very potent and very expensive, usually animal product, products such as cervicornu pantotrichum or lurong or deer velvet. So this is not, <coughs> not used often. It's very expensive and, and um, a lot of people won't touch it. Uh, gecko, gajia, so the gecko lizards, yeah. Uh, uh, so that's the first uh, class, those that are most uh, very important and very expensive. Those the most commonly used that reliably strengthen the young and are not too expensive, such as Marinde officinalis radix, or by GTN, and Seralia fructus, or Dugudger. Those that have a secondary function of nourishing the yin, such as Cordyceps, Dongchong Xia Zhao, which is a, a mushroom, and Eucomia cortex, Dujong. Most of these herbs are warm and drying, which can injure the yin and assist fire. So that third class of, of uh, these herbs is really cool because it tonifies both yin and yang. So that's an interesting class of herbs because they're almost the opposite from a Chinese medical point of view. Um, so because most of the herbs are warm and dry and can injure the yin and assist fire in this case. For this reason, they should not be used in those with fire from yin deficiency. These are some technical terms in Chinese medicine. All right, so that was an overview of the category of tonify yang, why we might use some of these herbs, and definitely why we would use uh, potentially this herb. Good quality of yin yang huo, according to Bensky and his team. It has many leaves and only a few stalks, and the leaves should be green and unfragmented. And we have another book. It's, a, it's a, a, a wonderful book called Chinese Medicinal Identification, an Illustrated Approach. If you see me looking to the side, I have the book right there on the side here. That's why I'm looking there. Um, and that's written by Zhao and Chen, and it's all about you know identifying good quality herbs. And it says superior quality are leafy, yellowish green, and unbroken. They also say the stems are thin and cylindrical, and the leaves should be lustrous with a leathery texture, no unpleasant odor, and the taste is slightly bitter. They, what I like about this book in particular is it uses a lot of organoleptic analysis of herbs. So organoleptic analysis is a really cool term that basically means touch it, smell it, taste it. <laughs> so it's our senses, basically. So that's where it comes in with this leathery texture, no unpleasant odor, and slightly bitter taste. Those are organoleptic an analyses of this herb. All right, so what does this herb specifically do? So according to Bensky, uh, its Chinese medical actions include tonifies the kidneys and fortifies the yang. Makes perfect sense in what we just read. It also dispels wind-cold dampness and warms and unblocks the flow of yang qi. So not only does it fortify and tonify the yang, but it actually unblocks the flow, so it can actually flow around the body easier, more easily as well. Chen Chen um, similarly say it tonifies the kidney, strengthens yang, and increases libido. So this is one of its major uses, as we're going to find out in a few minutes, and dispels wind damp cold and alleviates bijong. Bijong is painful obstruction syndrome. B syndrome is what we often will say in what we'd say at my school. So uh, this is uh, uh, really useful. Be, uh, painful obstructive syndrome can have a lot of manifestations, but often the arthritis, the different types of arthritis, will fall into these painful obstruction syndromes. In fact, I'm going to be talking about that tomorrow. 
So Brandon Wiseman say it has several functions, including warms the kidneys and invigorates young, strengthens sinew and bone. So that's good too, strengthens bone and sinew, and dispels wind damp. So again, all of them say that wind damp sort of thing. Zhao and Chen, that's that identification book, also has um, some really uh, quick medical Chinese medical actions, and it says it supplements kidney young, strengthens sinew and bone, and dispels wind dampness. So I'm not seeing a lot of discrepancies between these. So that's that's interesting. Again, when I look at all these different books, usually there's some translational issues. Sometimes there's just totally different uses. So the fact that they're fairly coherent is significant in this herb. Finally, we have um, Zhou Zhang. Zhou Zhang is the uh, translation of the Divine Husbandman's uh, Materia Medica, or the Shen Ban Sao Jing. That's that first book that I was telling you about with single herbs. And they say, he says this herb mainly treats impotence, expiry and damage, I, and, and pain in the penis. So expiry and damage, I think, is referring to the penis. Um, it disinhibits urination, boosts the chi and physical force, and strengthens the will. So even from a book that's almost 2,000 years old, we're saying that this is about impotence. And that's really, in modern days, is often, it's not the only use for this. It does have a good tonifying of yang capacity, but it's often used when impotence is there. And we're going to see why from a modern point of view in just a few. So how do you prepare this herb? So according to Bensky and his team, this herb is typically used in its unprepared form. Research suggests that in this form, it may have little effect on increasing sexual activity, while the prepared product has a marked ability to do so. Dry fried epimedium or chow yin yang, yin yang fo by dry frying them over an open flame to improve the herb's ability to tonify the yang and expel wind dampness. They can first be soaked in wine and fried until dry to improve its ability to expel wind dampness. Prepared epimedium or zhi yin yang fo is prepared by melting one part mutton fat, so that's lamb fat, adding five parts thinly sliced leaves and frying until the fat is absorbed and leaf slices are yellow. Yin Yang Ho's ability to warm the kidney yang is even stronger in this preparation and does not injure the yin. Mutton fat is sweet and warm in itself, disperses pathogenic cold and tonifies the kidney yang. So really, if we're going to use this uh, for impotence, this is the way we should, we should prepare it. Chen and Chen, uh, similarly says the unprocessed herb more strongly dispels wind and dampness and relieves Bijong or painful obstruction syndrome. Frying the herb in oil, either sesame or lamb oil, so that mutton fat, enhances its effect to tonify kidney yang and to treat impotence, premature ejaculation, and other sexual disorders. So here we have the option of using sesame oil, which I think is much easier to get uh, than mutton fat or lamb oil in general. So that, that allows us to hopefully use this in more modern times more easily. So Western uses of this herb, according to Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, this herb is used to treat fatigue, osteoporosis, and sexual dysfunction. So the osteoporosis is an interesting one. We're going to see why that comes up in just a minute. But fatigue, very much in that tonify yang category. You are going to be fatigued if you have yang deficiency. Uh, and same sexual dysfunction we've been talking about. The same thing. Yang is important part of, of uh, sexual function. So the fact if you 
have less yang, you generally will tend towards sexual dysfunction. So they kind of go hand in hand as well. But this osteoporosis is, is interesting. It's used to treat osteoporosis because one of its main constituents, a carrion, is said to have estrogen-like activity. So that's why it's helpful for osteoporosis, which is very interesting. Uh, and we're going to find out that the zacarian is a really important substance in just a minute. Um, so keep that in mind. And then WebMD adds many more uses of this herb, including bronchitis, heart disease, high blood pressure, HIV and AIDS, joint pain, which of course falls into our wind damp or Bijan uh, or B syndrome scenario, liver disease, and memory loss. However, they state there is insufficient evidence for any of these uses. So they did include those three uses, by the way, fatigue, osteoporosis, sexual dysfunction in this list. And they say there's no evidence, there's insufficient evidence. I shouldn't say no evidence. There's insufficient evidence for any of its functions. They did not think it was a useful herb at WebMD. I will say, though, that that was from 2020. So I think there's been a lot of research in the last few years. So I would hope that they would update that at some point. So Bensky has, uh, as usual, a really nice commentary on this herb. So let's, let's see what they say. Uh, the sweet warmth of yin-yang huo tonifies the fire at the gate of vitality and fortifies the kidney yang, while its acrid warmth expels wind dampness. Tonification of the kidney yang enables it to treat impotence, spermatorrhea, and urinary frequency. Internally, reinforcement of the kidney yang strengthens the bones, while externally, wind dampness is dispersed so that painful obstruction is unblocked. Thus, not only are these pathogens expelled, but the injury done by them is repaired. The Materia Medica Rurquadze says that it treats every type of wind-cold consumptive chi, spasms and contractures of the sinews and bones, loss of feeling in the four extremities, and it tonifies the lower back and knees. The ability of this herb to assist the memory and resolve is recorded in many Materia Medica texts, including the classic Materia Medica, as well as the Materia Medica Rurquadze, which says that it treats old age confusion and middle age forgetfulness. I'm not sure probably in between both of those stages at this point would be my guess, uh, in between old age confusion, middle age forgetfulness, uh, but there you go. Chen Chen says, sexual disorders often involve both kidney yin and yang deficiencies. When tonifying kidney yang, one must also include yin tonic herbs to balance the formula, thereby avoiding the unwanted buildup of heat from the yang tonic herbs. In addition, yin yang quo is not recommended for long-term use as it may damage the yin. Brandon Wiseman says it can be used to good effect, quote unquote, good effect in treating panting and cough ascribed to kidney yang vacuity. So that's often something we would call kidney not grasping the chi. So uh, comparisons, according to Bensky, yin yang ho can be compared to curculagus, uh, rhizoma curculagus. You know, I don't remember this being a big herb when I was studying. Otherwise, I'd, I'd be able to pronounce it better. Curculigeous uh, rhizoma, Xian Mao. I know Xian Mao, and that is important herb. I just don't remember curculigeous being pronounced much. Uh, Amerinde officinalis radix bajitian. All three herbs reinforce the kidney yang, strengthen the sinews and bones, and expel wind dampness, and are thus often combined to treat this, these disorders. However, bajitian is relatively mild, acrid, sweet, and only slightly warming with a soft moistening quality 
tonifies the yang without being overly dry or cloying. It also augments the essence. So the essence underlies yin and yang. That's the true center of, of, chi of Chinese medicine. Everything is kind of from the essence. And there's not a lot that can augment the es essence. My teacher believed, one of my teachers believed that you can't augment the essence with plant substances or you could with animal substances and you could with qigong and, and meditation, things along those lines. But um, here it is, uh, Bensky is saying it, it also augments the essence. And this is that um, the, uh, all three herbs, but by Baji Tian in particular is where the essence is best used in cases of yang deficiency with cold dampness. Yin Yang Huo is warmer and more markedly tonifies the fire at the gate of vitality while strongly dispersing wind dampness and unblocking painful obstruction. It is extremely drying and readily injures the yin, but is particularly useful for painful obstruction in patients with waning fire at the gate of vitality. Xian Mao is the hottest and most acrid herb or spicy herb in this group with a harsh nature that strongly expels cold dampness, but its slight toxicity makes it appropriate for only short-term use. It is even stronger, harsher, and very effective. So that's Xian Mao versus yin yang huo versus ba ji tian. So the only combination discussed in Bensky is with that xian mao, the curculagious rhizoma. Both herbs strongly reinforce the kidney yang and fire at the gate of vitality, although yin yang huo is more moderate in nature and also expels wind damp and painful obstruction. Xian mao is violent and strongly stimulates the fire at the gate of vitality, while also warming the spleen and stomach to assist in transportation and transformation. That's what those are said to do. Those are the functions in the same stomach, transportation and transformation. These qualities beneficially unite in this combination, which is often used in the treatment of chills, cold extremities, impotence with cold sperm and infertility. Yin Yang Huo is also known as the immortal spirit spleen or Xianling Pi. And the two herbs together are the foundation for the decoction, two immortal decoction, Urshian Tang. Urshian Tang, two immortal decoction, which is one of those decoctions I, I haven't really had occasion to use. It's an important decoction for very specific conditions. Um, so very interesting, usually in the elderly. The contents of this herb, yin yang huo, are flavonoids, alkaloids, fatty acids, and volatile oils. We're going to see that in most of our herbs that we see here. The primary chemical classes, icarians, icaricides, and epimedins, are flavonoid, flavonoids, which is just, a, we've talked about flavonoids in the past. Uh, these seem to be the main contributors to sexual function and act like phosphodiesterase inhibitors. So I, I just wanted to mention this. The, so the carrion in particular is considered a, a fairly strong phosphodiesterase inhibitor. And this is important. I just did a lecture last week on herbs that act like drugs. And this is one of them. Yin Yang Huo was one of them because this acts like Viagra. It acts like uh, you know, the, the uh, sexual function drugs. There's a couple others, not just um, Viagra. Um, so, and those are phosphodiesterase five inhibitors. That's how they work. That's what their chemical, you know, that's what their their function, their mechanism of action is. So, the fact that this is a phosphodiesterase inhibitor explains that 
it can act a lot like Viagra or Cialis or, or any of those, those uh, enhancement drugs can act. And so that's really an interesting thing and explains why this is used so much for impotence. But these also may have some phytoestrogenic activity in, in producing estrogen as well. Those are, from a Chinese perspective, those are almost opposite things. You know, like estrogen is considered more on the yin side and, and you know, impotence and those sort of things are more on the yang side of, of the equation. Now, there is a saying that, you know, you can't have yang deficiency without yin deficiency. So they often go hand in hand. But uh, they, they are opposites in a very real way. So kind of interesting, this activity. And it, it's shown here, these are, what I'm talking about with these contents and these actions, those are Western actions. Those aren't Chinese medical actions. Those are Western actions I'm talking about, phytoestrogenic attack activity. Um, so that's why it's useful for the osteoporosis that we mentioned earlier. And so um, it, 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 it's very interesting that it, from a Chinese perspective, it almost has opposite effects. And yet it's not yin tonifying in any way, shape, or form. It actually harms the yin. So science behind this, according to Chen Chen, this herb can act to aid sexual and reproductive, respiratory, cardiovascular functions, as well as antibiotic, anti-hyperlipidemic, so it lowers uh, uh, cholesterol levels in blood, anti-diabetic, and anti-inflammatory actions. So really interesting actions. They also quote several studies showing positive results in the following cases, coronary artery disease with an N of 130, and meaning number of subjects. Neutropenia, so that's... That's uh, too few neutrophils in the blood, only 22 in that study. 1,066 in a study on chronic bronchitis. Neurasthenia was 228. And viral myocarditis, that's the infection or a viral infection of the heart muscle uh, with an N of 36. So, you know, I, a lot of these in Chen Chen, I take with a grain of salt. An individual study doesn't mean much. Um, these numbers, some of them are pretty good. I mean, chronic bronchitis with an N of 1,066, that's a big study. Uh, an N of 22 and N of 36 are basically not statistically valid. Usually it's between 30 and 40 are statistically valid, but those are very small uh, studies. Um, so, you know, take this with a grain of salt. I'm, I'm, a I'm, I'm one of those, like, any individual study, at least it's in humans and it points in a direction I like that, but any individual study is, is um, going to be a little suspect. What we really want is a big systemic review or meta-analysis of a lot of big studies. That's ideally where we want to go, and we don't have that for most of our herbs. Drug-herb interactions. There, there are some concerns with drug-herb interactions here. Yangon Guo inhibits numerous isozymes of cytochrome P450, which is one of the markers that we use for drug-herb interactions. Um, in one of my classes, I talk about four big markers, this is one of them. And the big one that we're particularly worried about is cyclone P450-384, which this does um, potentially inhibit at least with one, one study. Uh, one study also showed some P-glycoprotein inhibition of one of the main constituents of yin-yang quo. So I'm always a little cautious um, when we look at one constituent, when we look at these things, because when you combine them with the other constituents, it may or may not have this inhibition of P-glycoprotein. P-glycoprotein is another one of those four uh, risk areas for drug-herb interactions. I'm not sure. These are both, they're, you know, yes, they should be noted. No, I wouldn't be super worried about drug-herb interactions based on these, but definitely keep an eye on these areas. Gardner McGuffin, who wrote uh, the American Herbal Products Association's Botanical Safety Handbook, a really nice book, 
uh, says there are no known interactions and says this herb is in interaction class A, which means herbs for which no clinically relevant interactions are expected. I don't think anything that I've said necessarily uh, disagrees with, with, Gardner, with what Gardner and McCuffin are saying. Uh, and based on PDE inhibition, that's that phosphodiesterase inhibition, I would caution against the use of this herb when taking organic nitrates. You are never supposed to use phosphodiesterase inhibitors with organic nitrates. And so I just think, given that this may have some activity in that, you want to avoid those. So that's in the realm of expert opinion. Um, so take it or leave it, but I would be cautious. Let's talk about some concerns about this herb. So according to Bensky and his team, this herb is contraindicating those with fire from immune deficiency. So we've been hearing about that. That's not a surprise here. This herb should not be taken as a decoction over a long period of time as it can injure the yin. Encountering the sources of the classic of Materia Medica observes that wine made from this herb is an important remedy for hemiplegia and can be, so that's, you know, um, paralysis of half the body, can be taken by itself. But if there's yin deficiency with spermateria or persistent erections, it is forbidden to take. In rare cases, such side effects as dry mouth, nausea, vomiting, dizziness, nosebleed, and abdominal distension have been reported. Chen Chen echo these concerns saying use of yin yang huo with use yin yang huo with caution in patients with yin deficient fire. Baron Wiseman say yin yang huo is very drying, it's thus inappropriate in yin vacuity with effulgent fire, you know, a big fire. Gardner McGuffins, however, say this herb is in the safest category, safety class one. So uh, it's, I, I, I think bottom line is this is a very safe herb. But from a Chinese medical point of view, there are some issues that we want to be careful about. We don't want to use this without other herbs in yin deficiency. That's the bottom line, especially with fire, yin deficient fire. And again, these are kind of technical terms. Um, so, so that's our herb of the day. So we started our podcast today with the discussion of the four great masters of the Jin Yuan dynasties. And then we discussed yin yang huo, an old, relatively commonly used herb that may act like herbal Viagra. Of course, that, of course, means lots of emails, and it's probably in those, in those, uh, a lot of those formulations that, are, that we get those emails about. The bottom line is this is a useful herb with, like many herbs, should be used appropriately as it can cause harm if used in certain patients. So, again... I, my, my typical advice is listen to your practitioners. Go, go get some advice. Uh, go listen to what they say and, and listen to it. So uh, I think a lot of the harm that we have in er herbs is people who don't understand them, especially now putting stuff out on the web and saying everybody should be doing this. It's an amazing herb. And then everyone, and then few people do it. And of course we have, at least in America, we have that attitude of a little is good, more is better. And so we take too much of it and we get ourselves hurt. So um, yeah, we definitely want to be, a, all of these, in Chinese medicine we say every single herb has yin yang, has good and bad. And so we need to balance the good aspects uh, of, of the herbs and minimize the negative aspects, which is why we use formulas so much in Chinese medicine. So there we go. So that's it for yin yang huo. That was a great exploration. In our next episode, we will be looking at a Western herb, valerian, 
used medicinally for thousands of years. I was kind of surprised to see that. That was awesome. Used by the Greeks and Romans. This is a very commonly used herb for insomnia and other conditions, which we will explore. And as usual, we'll, we will be exploring something a little different. So please join us for the next interesting, dare I say, exciting episode. Thank you very much for hanging there. If you like this podcast, please do us a huge favor. Give us a five-star rating in your favorite podcast app. Podcast app That would just make our day. Thank you for even considering doing that. And you can get this in our Drug Herb Series CUs and NCC, I can't even say, Drug Herb Series CUs, Continuing Education Units, and NCCAOM, that's the National Certification Commission of Acupuncture and Oral Medicine, PDAs or Professional Development Activities at www.integrativemedicinecouncil.org. That's Integrative Medicine Council, C-O-U-N-C-I-L.org. And if you want that mega deal, just put a slash mega deal on it and you will be able to get that amazing deal. You can always get in touch with me at Dr. Greg at spurbsherbs.com. That's S-P-E-R-B-S-H-E-R-B-S.com or our website, www.spurbsherbs.com. And as usual, the proceeding was presented by Dr. Greg Sperber. We would like to thank Janelle for all her support and everybody else who contributed to this program. Janelle. Janelle. Timothy, Timothy Dobbins, Dobbins. Roger Campbell.